0: Trigger warnings for this episode include the discussion of non-consensual medical interventions, transphobia, abortion, and religious persecution. Please proceed with caution. What do we know now about gender and sexuality in Malta? In episode 20, we arrived in this unique and complex country, with the intention of understanding, initially why intersex rights in particular were so advanced here, at least in comparison with most of Europe. Instead, what we have only begun to explore is the intricate tapestry of factors which create the gendered and sexual cultures of Malta. Religion, politics and globalisation, just to name a few. As we approach this journey inductively, following the voices that these issues belong to, Our question remains, who defines and who controls the Maltese body? Welcome to the second half of our two-parter, and to episode 21 of Slash Queer. You're here with me, your host, Georgie Williams. In our last episode, our interview with Dr. Chara Frendo Balzan, shed light on the influence of Catholicism on bodily autonomy in Malta. As one of only 27 EU countries which prohibits abortion on any grounds, our conversation about the experiences of transgender and intersex individuals in Malta expanded to also consider the status of women and individuals who can give birth. In this discussion, themes emerged that tied the experiences of transgender individuals intersex individuals and pregnant people together. Themes such as agency, the value of the human body, and socio-political oppression under religious powers. To understand these themes, how they present themselves in Maltese culture, and how they are linked, more Maltese voices must be brought into the arena. And with the materials available, we must unpick these concepts on a more academic level. It is important to note at this stage that the body is a means through which, quite literally, the values of nations and religious organizations are often reproduced. Birthgiving giving is one of the primary means for creating what we describe as family, a group of individuals often related to each other through biological ties. However, the concept of a family is an inherently political one, Many of us, when thinking of families, will think of the model of the nuclear family, consisting of a heterosexual couple and one or two of their own biological offspring. This is, of course, an inherently heteronormative and cisnormative concept. It expects the parents to be two straight people, and it expects one to be a cisgender male and one to be a cisgender female. Their ability to produce children is, especially in the eyes of many organized religions, one of the most important facets of this design. And where religion and politics intersect is where we see this pressure to procreate being placed upon individuals in the name of creating families. Sociologist Haley McEwan explored this phenomena in her publication Nuclear Power, the family in decolonial perspective and pro-family politics in Africa. McEwan describes this pro-family movement as theopolitical in nature, finding its roots in both theology, or religion, and politics. On the impact of this movement, McEwan wrote the following. Pro-family foreign policy involves measures to strengthen the family, through opposition to birth control, the use of condoms, even in the fight against HIV and AIDS, and denial of the rights and dignity of sexual minorities. Furthermore, religious activists have consistently opposed any foreign policy initiative that might weaken parental control over children, facilitate abortion, expand the rights of homosexuals, or devalue the role of the conventional homemaker and mother. The growing influence of an international pro-family movement has been noted by scholars who have studied the rise of discourses of the natural and traditional family. What feels pertinent in McEwan's passage is her mentioning of the natural or traditional family. In our last episode, we briefly touched on the concept of the natural and how, in theory, The prevention of medical intervention with intersex babies in Malta, and the prohibition of abortion, may both stem from the Catholic idealization of the natural. But did these values transcend Catholicism? Was there more that determined the experiences of transgender individuals, intersex individuals, and people capable of giving birth in the context of Malta? were we overlooking the cultural and political elements in pursuit of applying a religion-critical lens. In order to expand the dialogue on this subject, our travels took us next to the only people running an entirely queer-centric gallery space in Malta. Where there is art depicting social struggle, queer struggle, there is always conversation and congregation. Our congregation in the gallery of Rosa Queer, spelled K-W-I-R, consisted of myself and the two founders of this brilliant and insightful project.
1: I'm Romeo. I'm Maltese. I'm a multidisciplinary artist. I'm also a trans man alongside Morality arts. I founded Rosa Career with my colleague Charlie Kalkine and we've been doing this project for around... A bit over a year. Over a year.
2: I'm Charlie and I'm often teaching up English, I guess. I'm also a multidisciplinary artist. And yeah, so I started working on this project a little over a year ago. So Remy and I have known each other for quite a while, we've always wanted to do something together. Um, And he moved back to Wanda during COVID. And he had this brilliant idea. He was kind of, you know, very frustrated at the fact that there weren't any narratives relating to LGBTQ histories, but specifically trans mask histories. So we thought, let's apply for some funding and see if we can start something. And the idea was to curate and create an archive So Romeo spent a lot of time interviewing people and gathering information, which that led to it becoming a physical space rather than just a digital work. And the name comes from the research that Romeo was conducting.
0: Romeo and Charlie's project and subsequent gallery space is, at its heart, thoroughly Maltese. Romeo was very happy to explain to me where the name of this place, Rosa Queer, came from
1: yeah, so we, were, we knew that our our timeline would be really sparse, and we were doing some research, and when I came across was our suit. this person, apparently the first documented intersex person in month of seventeen seventy four and found some documents this person, mm-hmm. they were called Rosaria or um, and what we were noticing in the research is that we would have scientific and kind of criminal reports and documentation, but nothing necessary to do with gender or sexuality or nothing elaborated on that. And so Rosario inspired this project and we kept their name and what I was confused by, by is... We never got to know whether Rosa chose a different name after they were granted permission by the Grandmaster himself. So so basically they petitioned in front of the Grandmaster and they said that they, they would like to be a man, maybe. So the this grandmaster like appointed some proficient surgeons position and, and they did some tests and it it showed that their male main, maleness was was stronger, so they kind of approved Rosa to start living as a man, really. And there are rumours that people saw Rosa ping against the wall like a man would do and all these things. So yeah, but we never knew or got to know whether Rosa changed their name after them, you know, so we kept Rosa for this reason. And queer, it's like how I would think of spelling queer motifs.
0: Rosa Mifsud's case stands out in Maltese history. In an article in a 1954 edition of the British Medical Journal, excerpts of documents from the original Grand Court in Malta in the late 1700s detail Rosa's intersex status, described at the time with the now pejorative term of hermaphroditism. Assigned female at birth, the details of the invasive examination of Rosa's body suggest that Rosa's genitals were considered to be more comparable to those of male-sex individuals than female-sex individuals, with this therefore being considered grounds for legally recognising Rosa as male. If you wish to read more of this article, it is available in our gallery for this episode on the slash Queer website. Given Romeo's personal experience of navigating Malta as a transgender man, I wanted to inquire as to how he perceived the climate around LGBTQ rights here. As with my conversation with Dr. Frendo Barzan, this conversation quickly expanded into a conversation encompassing bodily autonomy, but also about the restrictive nature of the Maltese language when articulating queer experiences.
1: I think, politically, trans rights, intersex rights, like LGBTQ rights in general, are doing really well legally, politically. In in a sense, trans rights are much better than anywhere else I know, such as like UK and people from the community genuinely work hard on bringing NGOs And a couple of NGOs, like MGRL, for instance, like um, Rainbow Support Service. There I mean like, they work, like people are dedicated and passionate and they do try to educate and, you know, the public, like that is the mission. But we both of us think that we have all the rights and I think it's easy to get the rights and the legal side to it, but we need to start educating people from young and at schools. And we still feel that that's is lacking somehow. And In terms of
2: language used and definitions and
1: culture yeah, acceptance, acceptance and moving on from there. I think of mentioning also maybe
2: mm-hmm.
1: abortion. Yes, yeah, so,
2: um, yeah, women's rights are yeah. concerned.
1: We have a kind of ban on abortion here, yeah, so it's like right we have. Really, we're like, to Tokirais are, are like, we're praising them to be up here mm-hmm. and, but then. <laughs> it's so really patriarchal. Mm-hmm. So for us, it's something that we should all be working on and having conversations about. And in fact, we had held an event here, which was a book launch mm-hmm. of a Maltese writer based between Malta and um, Brussels. And she's written this book that really, really tackles feminism, from core and situation in Malta, misogyny, sexism, religion, and also trying to navigate the queer language as well a terminologies in Maltese, you know, in our mother tongue, which we were talking about. I never was able to talk about my aden- identity and my sexuality in my own language. Somehow, I always was more comfortable to do it in English. But it's, it's kind of, you mm, I am multis and it would be really nice to have a language to 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 talk about my sexuality and gender in, you know, my mother time. So anyway, we had this event in one in the gallery and we had three events around the book launch.
2: Which tied into topics related to the book, also what Roosevelt is trying to do. And one of those... Um, talks was on the subject of abortions. that had three, two guest speakers. One was a oh, yeah. lawyer and the other was a, a doctor. And um, it was really interesting because there was so much to be said and a lot of people that attended the event were from the, well, practicing doctors or, or, or lawyers, but none of them wanted to speak publicly. Some of the, just the stories that were shared were horrific. But it's sad that we can't have those conversations in public
0: still. As our conversation developed, naturally the topic of Catholicism came up, and the intersection of Catholicism and Maltese politics became a focus for Charlie and Romeo. A note here for clarification, the divorce referendum that Charlie mentions occurred in 2011.
1: Believing in God or pre-Christianity, Catholicism, it's like it also creates a sense of hatred or not accepting others. And I think sometimes people use it as an excuse to to just because they just are hateful towards anyone who's not heteronormative.
2: Yeah, this is actually really tough.
1: Yeah, it's like we could talk on about it for ages, but I personally think I'm not against yeah. God at all, and I do have some faith, but the church as an institution, and how some politicians even, I think politicians, well, I think yeah, it should actually yeah. Politics rather than the, the
2: church, in many ways, it's very divisive.
1: I mean, we could have said that maybe when got well, gay marriage, and, uh, like you, you had a party choosing Maybe they've it for votes or whatever. But with abortion, it's not easy. And once going to want to take it themselves?
2: Of course. We had to have a referendum on in 2004, maybe. Anyway, it hasn't been that long. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> and even that, so that, that was just, you such a...
1: Yeah, abortion is going to be... A it's a subject. And many politicians... Uh, you know, like they're not they're not really trying their best because they know that they will lose votes, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like so. I guess it's politically, political. Yeah, I think it's more political for political, political gain. You know, like the going government gain anyone yeah. any any votes, and it's still very sensitive subject to speak about. But there are like organizations like
2: yeah, like why uh, um, why and the Women's Rights Movement uh, Foundation. So, so there's a lot, there's a lot of activism here. There's actually so much more activism than there ever was, and it's really good to see that more people are out and talking about these things or trying to, even at the cost of you know being yeah. threatened and and I've slightly been to be threatened. It's still very.
0: What Rosa Queer was doing quite uniquely with their gallery space, was creating an almost artistic symposium on the subject of subversive and healthy masculinities. Naturally, this meant that many of the artworks on display had been created by transgender men, butch-identifying individuals, non-binary individuals and other artists for whom masculinity had been a subject of scrutiny and a goal for attainment in their lives. Of course, What is described as masculine is subjective to culture, and the subjectivities of a culture are grounded in the place and time in which it emerges and is maintained. Given the uniqueness of this art space and its current focus, I wanted to ask the Rosaqueer team, what does Maltese masculinity look like? How does the male identity slot into the contemporary Maltese cultural climate?
1: Well, personally, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in kind of aesthetics as well, you know, and how we perform this gender. And so I look a lot into macho culture, you know, myself in my art, artwork. And when we're doing this project, with you, I was telling Charlie, and it's like, we read and we see some visuals throughout history of trans and people of stressors at the time, like good lesbians, but I've never come across at one man, um, trans man or a British lesbian, um, you know, being documented or, or in, in a book or a uh, footage or something. And that was for me really interesting because when I was growing up here, you know, I was dressing in a specific way, maybe very different to what people in London or in the UK where we get dressed, where our tattoos would be a bit different. We are maybe, you know, like, yeah, like all these differences. Yeah, behaviors. You know, like a Maltese man is completely different to you see this. You see this in in other in other yeah. cultures, like and in other countries. Of course, some people would have a specific, like you know, man would have a specific walk. It's like kind of more international. But uh, there is a specific thing that I say, ah, oh, like that's like a Maltese. Good, I could perform a these man, and I wouldn't say I can perform a British guy, for instance. You know, I could, if I focus. But I, I was interested in, yeah, the style, like, what are we wearing? How, we know? How do we talk? How do we carry ourselves? Not all of us are the same. We all come from different backgrounds, and maybe I'm copying my dad, and I am copying this community of men, and other people are, you know, looking at another version of masculinity. So there are some versions, but, and we could also, you know, the rest of type we could also say, ah, that's, really a Maltese Like, you
2: know, that's a Maltese And I but also trying to get away from this idea we can only talk about masculinity in terms of toxicity, and that needs it to change. So that's why <laughs> the show is called Tender and Masculine. It, it's it's a phrase coined by Romero. He, he created these beautiful uh, t-shirts with the words Tender and Masculine. When we, were, we knew we needed to end our year program with a group show. Um, so their brain has to be there and it is to see how we discuss masculinity and by discussing different forms of masculinity also discuss different forms of femininity you can have a wider dialogue and so many people that also came here are from you know, are from the cis community, are heterosexual, are, 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 are quick, like I not and everyone could still have this conversation. That was what was very
1: important. And this work in particular, where CKR, like, we see here, it's like, there's a sound piece talking about, like, you know, it's called T-Facts, and yeah, like L and I like, photograph their friends, mm-hmm. and they're talking about, uh, the, in the conversations, there's a lot around this community, how people feel, and what's the relationship between this family masculinity and femininity, and navigating the space and like around this or beyond it, and t forty relationships. And all of the people in this show in particular well also in what we're, we have been trying to work on throughout um this project really and trying to find other alternative notions of masculinity or like discussions around it and what could they be. Mm-hmm. You know, do we invent new ones? Do we yeah, and as as you said, we weren't we we weren't interested mm-hmm. in reinforcing yeah this idea around that masculinity or we're gonna have them we're to talk about this toxicity. So yeah, we wanted to stay away from that and to just show that there's other versions of masculinity. A, a
2: celebration as well, rather than having the work that's going to just be about, you know, victims. I don't yeah. think anyone in this show feels like they are a victim.
1: We didn't want to chase a, a pity documentary kind of uh, story at all. And not, of course, not ignoring the fact that some people would have had it really hard going up with and but it was about them being so happy and thriving and like, you know, people would come and say, wow, they are, you know.
2: Well, just talk about overcoming the challenges rather than just really focusing on, because we have, even if you think about coverage here, especially local coverage, so TV programs on the subject, you know, on the LGBTQ um, topics, it is usually always a very negative or it's always a sad story and, and Yeah, Sometimes
1: it feels like for us to be accepted, you have to see us suffer and then maybe you have some empathy and you start accepting us, whereas we didn't want the the spaces for us, firstly. So yeah, it's so nice for kids to come here and feel like they're seeing themselves as someone who's like doing so well and they're kind of accepting themselves and they're doing general things, like everyday things, like everyone else. And uh, with a smile, for instance, even as precious like photographs with people smiling in them, you know, it's just like, just that circle. It's so beautiful. Better than having to always read some form of depressing story. And you see yourself yes, yeah. only being able to be reflected in that. And the show was again like that. It's so playful. Um, uh, it's all positive, it's educational. There's like histories that we're making visible.
0: Throughout our time on this project, you may have noted that our conversations with transmasculine members of our community have been few and far between. As someone who, on the technicality of taking testosterone, falls into this community, I have long wanted to provide a stronger spotlight for those of us wanting to embrace and even subvert masculinity through ourselves. My final question to Romeo was perhaps more personal than political. I wanted to know if there were any myths or assumptions about transgender men that he wanted to challenge or dispel.
1: I don't know, like, I often think about this, and I really, really work on what kind of man I want to be and become. Um, I just came out like a year and a half ago even been, and before then I was, I mean, I knew always I was a boy, um, but it was, um, yeah, you come out as a lesbian, that's like 30 story for most people, I think, uh, from our community. Um, and I don't regret any, any part of my journey. There was a time when I was angry. Why didn't I do it before? Why didn't no one notice? Ever? Like, that's, there was no language work for me then, but now, I, I was able to connect so much with my femininity and which I couldn't do before. And I pushed it away so much, like, because I wanted to be accepted and seen, be seen as a dude. So I felt that there was no, there were times when I didn't even dance, because I thought like, dancing, and now I love dancing, you know, just these things, that, but I have to continue going back to my childhoods like, and redoing that. And also now, like as an adult man, like what, what's, how do I, because maybe I picked up on things that are not so great or behaviors that's, but all of us can do it, like whether you're trans man, cis man, I think we pick up some negativities in our behaviors, which is like, you know,
0: misogyny, but this is like,
1: um, or sexism, but this is like an overall thing instead. Yeah. And I, as a trans man, I really want to work hard on not spreading transphobia. Like, you know, we all need to some internalized transphobia. And now, am course, I just did have it. And so I like to work on that. And if I think kids, I don't want to go spreading this, you know, these thoughts out loud, because I don't want to affect my other trans-mask friends, or, you know, so it's just constant. constant. I try to talk with these dudes, my dad, like other men, <laughs> like trying to see how it could work together and maybe help. Room to, yeah, for people to, to start thinking more about talking about the subjects. Maybe because maybe we don't talk about it too much either. What kind of behavior you, even between friends, maybe? Men are really gonna like, you know, unpack masculinity together on a night out. of <laughs> something like...
2: But I've seen you in spaces where I've thought, "Oh my god, why are we going in here? This this is going to just..." T-? and it's been, yeah, totally fine. And Romeo will start to discuss topics where I think, oh, "Oh, no
1: one's going to want to
2: engage," and they
1: they do. Yeah, so it's kind of men like floating around. Right? So I'm not the best example to talk, to share because I have my own bad habits and traits and. Flaws in my character. <laughs> I'm not doing it all right for sure, but there are some some things that I look closely. I, I look at the subject all the time, one because I'm going through it, and I'm be, becoming that. Yeah, I think just unpacking all the time little things that are like taking so for granted. You know, this is what a man does, this is what man does, this what a woman does. Like we are still very binary here as well. Also <laughs> trying to avoid that, trying to even as explain how to go out. that sometimes. It's, I think sometimes people are all right with the trans man, because you start passing, but man, is like, all right, it's like, you're one of us now. You're a dude. Then when it comes to non-binary people, people like find it still, they want to make a whole argument around why they don't understand. We've had people like going hard to this is too complicated and blah blah. It's like you you say you're really intelligent, you're at this position. It's like there's people who do not want to change or or learn. Um, and they're hard headed with their values and their habits. But I think
2: change. there are also people that are worried and fearful of making mistakes and upsetting yeah, someone. That's true. Which is why I think the work, the scope of the work here is, it's it's okay to to
1: ask. And yeah, that's really, that's exactly that. Because all of us, mistakes. I do constantly recently with the archive, uh, we both had to sit down and we kind of edit our description of the project because maybe it would have been excluding some people, but it's like a, a constant change a constant learning together. So there's, we're always open for that. And our language changes really fast. It's like, and all, we, 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 we always admit we can make mistakes, but once we know that that hurts someone or we hurt someone, and um, all we want to do is, you know, learn from that and change. And that's the beauty of us sharing and learning together. That's what we kind of want this place to become. We should, And I think through our events, everyone who has come here has always felt really comfortable. And we've had people who are not from the LGBT community and they come and they don't feel threatened or anything yes. because it's not the point at that's all. the majority. Yeah, <laughs> yes.
2: Which is great.
0: Romeo and Charlie's work was especially in a country as small as Malta, unique and arresting. What they were doing with this space was giving agency back to the queerly masculine artists of their exhibition, allowing them to present their bodies and stories without censorship or the requirement of shared tragedy to facilitate sympathy or empathy in their audience. Beyond this, though, Rosa Queer was providing a space for congregation As Charlie mentioned, their visitors had been cisgender and transgender, heterosexual and non-heterosexual. Although issues surrounding gender equality, bodily autonomy and religious bigotry persevere in Malta, Rosa Queer was and remains a site of decentralized action, independent from both church and state. If subjects close to the focuses of Rosa Queer remain taboo in the Maltese public consciousness, there is immense power in what they are doing in creating a hub for education, conversation, and subversion of these inaccurate narratives. Malta's first queer-centric art space is achieving phenomenal things, and the conversations their space generates will likely reverberate throughout Malta in the years to come. The Maltese socio-political climate is a complex one, and perhaps best represents how varied the mechanisms behind social change can be. From a distance, we may be inclined to presume that the state of intersex rights and freedoms in Malta has emerged from a society whose perspectives on bodily autonomy, gender and sex are relatively progressive, at least relative to the rest of the world but it requires us comparing the welfare of intersex people to the welfare of other groups, Maltese women, Maltese LGBTQ identifying citizens, for the reasons behind Malta's stance on the intersex community to become more apparent. An anonymous source in Valletta, who moved to Malta from an Australasian country a few years ago, described the Maltese government's approach to progressive legislation as a roll of the dice If a political group landed on an idea which was well-received by younger voters, that idea was very likely to be used to win those votes. But that theory didn't explain why Maltese politics still handled the subject of abortion with such reluctance and resistance. As pleasant a notion it would be that Malta's progressive approach to intersex rights represented the general values of a forward-thinking Maltese government, it seemed an increasingly unlikely prospect. As our time in Malta was nearing a close, I wanted to follow up on one final lead, a contact Romeo and Charlie had recommended to me. As this project is always inductive and participant-led, I trusted their judgment to the huge benefit of this project. Gabriela Kaleha is the head of the Sexual Orientation, Gender Identity, Gender Expression, and Sex Characteristics Unit at the Human Rights Directorate in Malta. A well-established LGBTQI activist in Malta, she previously worked for nine years as the coordinator of the Malta Gay Rights Movement, an organization founded in Malta in 2001. If anyone was going to be able to provide the final context and insight I needed for gendered and sexual cultures present in Malta, it was likely Gabby. Although we were not in a position to record audio for this interview, Gabby was gracious enough to allow me to transcribe our conversation. My starting question in our conversation was as follows. Malta leads Europe with regards to intersex healthcare, seems to lack the same progress in women's rights and LGBTQ rights. What did Gabby think accounted for this disparity? And did she agree or disagree that Malta is progressive with regards to intersex rights? Her response was as follows. So Malta introduced a ban on normalizing surgeries on intersex children in 2015 through the Gender Identity, Gender Expression and Sex Characteristics Act article 14 in particular. In this case, you could say that Malta's legal framework protects the bodily integrity of Malta's intersex persons. We're still in the process of concluding the treatment protocol overview, so that's taken longer than was anticipated. Of course, the ban still applies, so the revised protocol is also intended to support the setting up of an interdisciplinary team that will assist the medical professionals in the advice that is given also to family members of intersex children and intersex persons themselves. There's a working group that has been meeting regularly for the past two years, and they are coming towards the conclusion of that process. I have to say that also before the law was passed, this was already in practice, so the law normalized this practice. They're seen and perceived to be quite different issues, that is, abortion and intersex welfare, in terms of who is impacted, but also in terms of how Maltese people would frame them from a moral and religious perspective. I think it's factual to say at this point in time that although the majority of people oppose abortion here, there is a growing movement that is supporting the decriminalisation of abortion, but also supporting access to abortion. I think in terms of political will, The furthest political parties have gone is to state that this is an issue that needs to be discussed or debated. What I would say is that we have one of the best legal frameworks globally with regards to legal gender recognition. So the process is based on self-determination and the right to gender identity. We also have no age limits, so minors can access legal gender recognition. Since 2018, we have also had the Gender Wellbeing Clinic which is also providing trans-specific healthcare. For trans people, this includes hormonal therapies and surgical interventions, but also psychosocial support. Although not everything is currently covered under our National Health Service, what is available is increasing, and in the electoral manifesto in April, they promised to extend these health services to include genital surgeries, so that should become available. I think where we, of course, lag a little behind is in social acceptance. The results of the fundamental rights agencies also indicate that levels of harassment and violence here are lower than in other EU member states. So there is a positive trend, but transphobia is of course still present in our society. And with social media, this is a more difficult problem to eradicate because Maltese people are therefore impacted by transphobic views from anywhere in the world. Our trans community is, however, more integrated into schools and families. There is, of course, still work to be done to address transphobia in society. We don't really have the turf movement. We have some right-wing evangelical groups and movements bringing up gender ideology and all of this, but they don't really represent all of Maltese society and don't really have the same influence on the political sphere as in other countries. It's true, Malta has advanced considerably in parts of LGBTQ plus rights, but lags behind in others which have proven to be more challenging. My favorite line from Gabby's statement was this, mainstreaming equality is an ongoing, never-ending process. Oftentimes, as a researcher on this project, I will discover that there are episodes which cannot be tied up neatly in a bow. That is to say, with a sense of closure about the direction of the socio-political climate of a country, or an uplifting message about the progressivism that has made itself apparent. It would be distasteful if we were to hail Malta's stance on intersex rights as some kind of sign of their overall awareness of and support for minority groups. This is not an episode in which I will sweepingly praise a government for their inclusive policies and legislation, even if a community who have gone without these basic rights for so long are finally being recognised and included. When I spoke to intersex activist Sean Seifer-Wall in episode 13 back in 2021, he made it clear that there is and will always be intersections between the gender and sex-related rights and freedoms of intersex people and the LGBTQ identifying individuals, although their needs and goals are still, crucially, very distinct and should be treated as such. But Malta's approach to intersex welfare needs to be rooted in respect for autonomy, not merely the unaltered state of the human body medical freedom should always be grounded in information and choice, and, like with the leaps and bounds they have made with LGBTQ rights compared to many European countries, Malta could lead by example with a more progressive approach to both women's rights and abortion access. Both Romeo and Gabby pointed out that the climate for transgender rights in Malta Far outshines the climate for countries such as in the United Kingdom. Gabby mentioned the TURF movement, TURF standing for Transgender Exclusive Radical Feminists, a group who have been previously mentioned as part of this project, who apparently believe in women's rights but do not believe in including transgender women in that movement. This group is incredibly harmful, and I was very pleased to hear that that issue has not reached Malta at least yet. So although the complexities of Malta's approach to these sensitive subjects cannot be reduced down to exclusively positive or negative statements, the voices of the Maltese leg of this project have shone light on the immense progress made in this country. Time will tell what can yet be achieved in, as Gabby said, The process of mainstreaming equality. But it is beyond doubt that movements and motions are taking place in this country, and the people behind them have proven themselves both formidable and devoted. Much has been done, and there is much left to do, and there is strength in the growing number of Maltese progressives fighting for the liberation of the Maltese body. This episode of the Slash Queer podcast was edited by Sam Clay, transcribed by Bronya Smith, scripted, produced, and hosted, as always, by me, Georgie Williams. A very special thanks to Charlie Kalki and Romeo Roxman Gatt from Rosaqueer, and to Gabby Kaleha from the Human Rights Directorate for their invaluable contributions to this episode. Many thanks also to our Patreon subscribers, old and new. We are over the moon with the recent uptick in supporters, and we would love to keep this trend going. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash slash queer. That's s-l-a-s-h queer. You can also find our slash queer merchandise on Threadless. And we are still accepting donations via Coffee. The links to all of the above are in the description for this episode. This episode was recorded on location in Malta. Music in this episode was composed by our resident audio king, Sam Clay. If you enjoyed this episode or have any feedback, please get in touch on Instagram or Twitter at, at slash queer or email us at info at slash queer dot com. As we press on, stay kind. Stay radical and stay queer.